Defendants within the criminal justice system are separated into two separate yet unequal categories, Caucasians and people that have financial resources to afford adequate representation and disadvantaged people of color who don't. These are their stories. You're charged with the offense of capital murder. Who? An affidavit charging you for this offense has been filed in court. Do you understand what I've told you, Anthony? Yes, ma'am. Capital murder? Me? Who? Who murdered? I mean, you have a chance to talk to the officers that actually worked the case. They, they, oh, okay. You want to talk to them? Sure. Man, this, <laughs> this is a big mistake. Capital murder? I never even shot a gun in my life. Okay. She wants you to sign this. And you'll just sign. This is not saying you have just that your rights have been read to you. You get a copy of it. And you'll get a copy of this right here, person warned. Yeah, this still has to get straightened up. August 22nd, 1992. A day I will never forget. This is a day that changed my whole life. I was only 26 years old, and I lived in a small town called Brenham, Texas, which is like right between Austin and Houston, Texas. I would say 78 miles one way, 78 miles the other way. The highway that links them is Highway 290, right? And, and this, this particular day was a Sunday morning. Sun was shining. It was a nice day, very quiet day. And I was in my mother's apartment. I had just woken up. I had nothing on my mind. I was thinking that maybe I should ride to Austin because I was thinking about moving back to Austin. And at this time, a knock came to the door. I walk over to the door, look through the peephole, and I see that it was the neighbor. He was about, oh, about five foot eight, 150 pounds, about 32, 33 years old. And his name was Mike, light, light brown skinned brother. Real quiet and laid back. He don't really bother nobody. So it was surprising to me that this early in the morning around, and I think it was about 11 o'clock, that Mike would be knocking on our door. So when Mike, I opened up the door this guy tells me out the blue that the police was looking for me. Now, imagine waking up, not knowing what you're gonna do that day, and the first news you get is the police is after you or are looking for you. Uh, I asked Mike if he knew why they were looking for me, and he told me he didn't know, which I didn't know. So being curious, I thank Mike, I close the door, and I walk over to the television uh, where the telephone sat at, right? Um, picked up the telephone, called my auntie. And I asked her, after she answered the phone, I said, auntie, Mike just came over and told me that the police are looking for me. Have they been down there? And she said, no, well, why would the police be looking for you? You know, because my auntie knows that I don't live that kind of life, right? Monty is about 62 years old. Um, uh, she's <laughs> funny. We are 
we're kind of like brothers and sisters in a sense because she was the youngest of my, my mother's siblings. So we kind of grew up close together. And so it was just caught her off guard that I would be calling her, telling her the police looking for me. One of the things that she told me to do was to reach out to the police and find out why it is that they would be looking for me. And I did that, right? I get off the phone with my, with my auntie and uh, I put a pair of shorts on. I put a t-shirt on and I begin to walk outside and walk downstairs to go look for the police. Now, yeah, yeah, think about that. I actually went looking for the police. Now, this is the part where I like to tell everyone that no matter what you've been accused of, no matter what you've heard you've been accused of, don't ever go looking for the police. That's not your job. Let them do their job. And their job is to come and find you. However, this time, being that I was naive, knowing that I hadn't done anything wrong, I decided to go look for the police. When I get downstairs, a police cruiser pulls up. And I quickly recognized the officer because he had been a police officer in, in, in our town for many years. Remember, our town is small, less than about 50,000 people. So as I'm standing there, this officer pulls up and he gets out of his cruiser and he's looking directly at me. He's also middle-aged, about 53, 54 years old at the time. Pretty big guy, Hispanic. His name was Officer Garcia. And I could tell that he was looking at me in a way that he was perplexed because he, didn't, he noticed that I wasn't nervous, I wasn't trying to run. And he came up to me and he asked me, what's your name? And I told him my name. And he said, can I see some ID? So I gave him my ID. And then he tells me, he said, well, I've been told to come pick you up and bring you to the police station because some officers want to talk to you. My response was, could you tell me what this is about? And he said, no, but once, I get, once we get there, some officers will talk with you. By this time, Mike comes down the stairs and he walks over to his car, which was right next to mine. I had at that time a white Nissan Pulsar, about a 1998, had this red stripe down the line. And no matter where I would go, people would recognize that vehicle. That's Anthony Gray's vehicle because it's like the only one that was in the town, okay? And so Mike comes downstairs and he walks over by his vehicle, which is kind of right beside mine. And uh, I see him and I begin to speak with him. I asked Mike if he could let my mother know that the police officer is taking me to the police station, but I, I should be right back home. This is what I told Mike. I didn't realize that day that telling Mike that I would be back home would take me 6,640 days before that became true. So I spent 18 and a half years fighting for my life for a crime I didn't know anything about. Anyway. Once we get in the police cruiser, we started going downtown to the police station. Now, as I say, it's a Sunday morning. It's really quiet. Sun is shining. Not many people on the street, but we're going down the main street. And every now and then we come up to a stoplight, another vehicle will pull up. And I would notice those people in the other vehicle would always try to look over into the police cruiser 
to see who was sitting in the back seat. That was embarrassing to me. So what I would do, I know I would start crouching down because I didn't want anyone to see me in a police cruiser for something I don't know anything about. It just felt embarrassing. And as we're going on down the street and I continue to have this encounter, we finally make it to the police station. This is where he pulls in into what they call the Sally Port. It's Iron Gate. And the police officer pulls up to the Iron Gate, radio inside the off, uh, building to let them know that they, he's out there. They lift the Iron Gate up. You drive up under the Iron Gate. The Iron Gate closes behind you. And then a, another Iron Gate in the front will raise up. And he drives up under that gate. And that gate also closes behind you. That's when you become incarcerated. So once we was inside the second uh, Iron Gate, the officer gets out the vehicle, takes his weapon and puts his, put it, put it in this like box, right? Then open up the door for me, help me get out the back seat and they escort me inside the building. Once we get inside the building, I notice how really quiet, and eer how eerily quiet it was. All you could hear was the air condition blowing. That was just, it was like light green paint on the wall, steel, concrete, that's all it was. And we were walking down this hall once we got in the building and we took a right to go down another hall and then we entered the booking room to the left. And once I entered the booking room, there was another officer inside there. And he asked me to take everything out of my pockets and put up on his desk. I had this long desk where the officer would stand and across this desk was a bench that he, once I took all the things out of my pocket, he asked me if I would go and sit down on his bench. I wasn't handcuffed at this time because they took taken handcuffs off of me and everything. And I'm just sitting on this bench and officer's doing his paperwork and no one is talking to me. By this time, officers start walking in and out of the booking room, in and out of the booking room. And I started to ask the officers that were walking in and out, hey, can somebody tell me why I'm here? No one would talk to me. They would simply say that uh, some officers are on the way to talk to you, which was cool because I didn't have nothing on my mind. I mean, I haven't done any, nothing wrong, so I'm not worried. I just want to know what this is about so I can go home. That's my mindset. So I'm just sitting there not thinking much about anything. I'm just waiting on the officers. About 20 or 30 minutes later, there was four Texas Rangers that walked into the booking room along with a magistrate. Magistrate was about 63, short Caucasian woman, uh, along with uh, four Texas Rangers who was all Caucasian in their mid 50s to 60s, wearing big white hats, white shirts, brown pants, and boots. And uh, I mean, you they thought that they were above the law, so to speak, because they walked with, in with this arrogance about themselves. And immediately I knew this had to be serious. So the magistrate asked me if I would stand up and uh, I did. And she asked me my name and I told her and she began to read me my rights, telling me that I had a right to remain silent. Anything that I say can and will be used against me. All right. And then she asked me, told me that I had been charged with capital murder. <laughs> capital murder? 
I mean, you could have seen, if you would have seen my expression, that was a video. I, I didn't even know how to respond to what she was saying to me. I mean, I, I wanted to ask the question, so I was sort of like raising my hand, but what was I gonna ask? I, I didn't know, I, I didn't know what to say. All I could say is capital murder. I mean, you made a big mistake, right? And we definitely have to get to the bottom of this because I, I didn't know what we was coming here for, but I definitely didn't think that you were gonna charge me with capital murder. I mean, I never even shot a gun in my life, right? And I'm not a criminal. So capital murder was just way out there. And uh, uh, immediately, because I knew I was innocent, they asked me if I wanted to talk with them. And I said, yes, of course I want to talk with you, man, because I just want to tell you guys the truth so I can go home. Because, you know, the truth should set you free. That's, that's what I've always heard, right? But here's what I want to say to that. Man, if you're ever incarcerated, ever arrested and accused of something, and your rights are read to you, and an officer asks you if you would like to speak with them about the nature of the crime that you're being accused of, your response should only be that I would like an attorney. That response, I promise you, will be the difference between losing your freedom and going back home to your family. The reason why I'm able to say that is because in my naivete, I know I was innocent and I just wanted to cooperate. So when the officer asked me, would you like to talk with us? I said, of course, I want to talk. So we go back out of the booking room, take a right down back down this cold, silent hallway, then take another left and we go into this interrogation room. And once I get inside this interrogation room, another Texas Ranger was in there and he was the first black Texas Ranger that I see. So now we have five Texas Rangers, right? And we get in there and all of a sudden they light into me. I am everything but the child of God, okay? Uh, and then at the end of the day, they walk up to me and say, hey man, this man put everything on you, but we know he did it. We just want you to tell us what he did. And I said, how can I tell you what someone did, but I don't know, right? So this game of, 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 of cat and mouse lasted up until the next morning. I was interrogated over 13, 14 hours, right? So much so when they had me in this interrogation room and it kept trying to tell me that I, someone had lied on me and said that I did a crime with them. I didn't know who the guy was. And they were telling me the guy's name because I kept asking, who, who is the guy? And they finally told me the guy's name. And I, I, I kind of relaxed my shoulders, you know, because I, I don't know this guy and, and he don't know me. You know, he was married to a cousin of mine, but me and my cousin was close and we was kids. You know, we're grown people now and I, I haven't seen my cousin years so I don't know the guy so when I heard the name it didn't dawn on me so I kept asking myself in my head Robert 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 and then I finally asked the, the, the officer 
Robert who? Because he told me Robert had said this. And I said, Robert who? Because I knew several Roberts. And finally, him seeing that I really didn't know who he was talking about, he filled in the blank for me. He said, Robert Carter. And I kept saying, Robert Carter, Robert Carter. And it dawned on me, this, this is the guy that was, I think, married my cousin. But he don't know me. So that was my response to them. I'm like, oh, y'all joking because this man don't know me. And, and, and so they see the smile on my face. Oh man, it just upset them. They was like, what are you smiling about? Why are you so, and I, I mean, because I was, I felt relieved because this guy didn't know me, right? But that wasn't enough. So they continued to interrogate me, telling me all the things that this guy had lied and said about, about me. To the point where I told him, I said, hey, look, I'll take a lie detector test or anything for you guys because I don't have nothing to hide. I'm innocent. Listen, man, <laughs> never, never agree to cooperate with any law enforcement without your attorney. It can be the difference. As I, as I said, it can be the difference between your freedom and getting back home to your family. So I asked them to take a lie detector test, thinking that if we just take a lie detector test and I just tell the truth, this is over with and I can just go home. Just one big mistake. Once again, you do not cooperate with law enforcement unless you have an attorney. Because remember what I told you when they read me my rights? What you say can and will be used against you? That's true. That's true. And I'm going to continue to tell you more about it. So, because once they start playing this game and interrogating me and telling me this man lied on me, I wanted to cooperate. I wanted to take the lie detector test, right? So I go take the lie detector test. They set it up. They tell me they're going to set one up for me. But in the meantime, I had to go into a holding cell, right? So, that, so, so actually, I am now, I have now been apprehended. And they're now put me in jail. And this first jail cell is called a holding cell. This is where they're going to keep me until they set up the polygraph test, which is going to now be in Houston, Texas. Remember I told you the, the, the highway from Brunham and Austin and Houston is 290, is, is Highway 290. So and this is about an hour, hour and 15 minutes from Brunham. So they're going to set up this polygraph test in Houston, Texas at the DPS office. Okay. What I requested. Now remember that I requested this. So until then, I'm in this holding cell. And when I get in the holding cell, as I say, it's, it's, it's all you hear is air, the air condition blowing. It's brick walls, light green. There's this, this, this steel bunk. And then you have concrete floors. And it's real quiet. And on the bunk is a green blanket. That's all you have. And, and inside it's so cold that you end up having to put the, wrap yourself around this green blanket. Now I'm in this holding cell, freezing. And it, it, I know it was ours because when they finally came and got me, this is an officer from another county the county that the crime originally happened in, which was Burleson County. So an officer from Burleson County had to now come to Washington County, which was Brenham, Texas. 
and they escort me to Houston to take the polygraph test. Okay. Now, this officer that came pick me up, his name was Big Lou. Big Lou was about oh, 6'4", weighed about 330, 340, with a big old beer gut, right? Had on a big old hat, big white cowboy hat, had on a white shirt, sheriff shirt, uh, stuck inside of his brown trousers, and the shirt looked so tight like the button was just gonna pop right off. And I tell you what, he was very arrogant. He wanted to impress the Texas Rangers. So when he finally got to the jail and they brought him to the holding cell to get me to escort me to Houston, he come with much attitude, right? They came and they got me and it's like, woke me up, told me to come and up to the door, turn around, put my hands through the slit so they could handcuff me, which is what I did. And after that, they asked me to stand up, and take a step back. They opened up the steel door and that was Big Lou. He had chains in his hand and he meant business. He was gonna chain me up, hang, I mean, he was just gonna really, really treat me like this criminal. And I'm looking at him like, man, do we have to go through all this? I'm cooperating. I am the one who wanted to take the polygraph test. I'm the one who wanted to tell the truth. But, but Lou wasn't trying to hear none of that. He did not want to be cordial. He did not want to be professional. He wanted to be an asshole. And that's what he was, an asshole. So he kind of handled me rough when he shackled me up. And then he escorted me out the, out the building to his vehicle. Once we get outside the, the building, man, it's, I could tell I had been there for a while because now the streets were crowded, sun was shining really bright. And everywhere I looked, I just seen cars. So as, as we get to the front of the building, and we open up, they open up the door, and I'm looking to my left, I see a friend of mine, uh, a friend that I had went to school with. Uh, he was about a couple of years older than me, but he was at the stoplight in his, in his little truck, and uh, he was looking at me, and I could tell, it's just, it's just something, I could read his mind, and he was reading my mind, because I could just tell the way we looked at each other. He was looking at me like, man, what the hell? And I'm looking at him like, man, I don't know what the hell. Because, because number one, they know that Anthony Graves is no criminal. So it just, it just blows their mind that I'm in custody like this. And they're parading me around like this. And it's blowing my mind because I'm no criminal. And I'm in, get, and I'm in custody like this. And I'm looking at my friend and my friend looking at me and we can't even explain it. But then when I look in front of me, that's Lou's vehicle. This police cruiser, he got us parked beside the curb, right? And he's escorting me to the back, back seat. We take about, oh, it's about 25, 30 steps. And we're right there at the vehicle. He opens up the door for me and he slides me into the back seat of the police cruiser. Shuts the door, then he walks around, get on the other side, gets in, crank up the vehicle, and then we headed off to Houston. Like I said, it's about an hour and 15 minutes away. But Big Lou, as I wanted to be the asshole, decided that since this is an important case, that he can't just drive the regular speed limit. We got to do 90 to 100 miles an hour to get to Houston. Now, needless to say, I was scared. Number one, I'm handcuffed, I'm shackled, so I'm sliding in the seat, okay? And this guy is just driving like what they say, a bat out of hell. 
trying to get to the DPS office in Houston so we can take the polygraph. About 45 minutes down 290, we had reached Houston. We were pulling off of the highway and we were headed over to the DPS office. Once we got inside, once we got to the DPS office, I noticed that there were hardly no vehicles there. You know, it's a Sunday, so I'm assuming that not many people were working. But by this time now, it's about four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Remember, they had came and got me and took me to the police station at 11 a.m. that morning. Now it's about five or six o'clock in the afternoon by the time we get to Houston, okay? So uh, when we get there, uh, there's about three or four vehicles in the parking lot. But we pull up to this back door, right? And once we pull up to the back door, I hear Lou radio, uh, radio in and tell them that we're here. About 10, 15 seconds later, uh, the Texas Ranger opens up the back door. And I recognize him. He was one of the Texas Rangers that was in Brunham interrogating me. White man, about 45, 50 years old. Uh, and he seemed to be nice. So when he come out, you know, Lou gets out the vehicle, puts his big old hat on, pulls up his pants. Then he walks to the back uh, door of the vehicle to open it up and tell me to get out. Grab me by my arm and helps me get out. Well, being that this ranger was there, I seen Lou act a little more professional and cordial toward me. So I, I assumed that he was respecting the ranger, which made me feel okay. So the Texas Ranger came to the car and met us, and the three of us walked back inside the building. We get in this building, man, it's a big old building where like this big empty room that they take me to, and there's nobody's in here. But I walk up and I see this man, she's black man, about 56 years old, standing about, oh, 6'1", 6'2", uh, had a serious face, but I had a calm demeanor. And he seemed to be nice. At least that's how he was treating me. Because he walked up to me, he shook my hand, greeted me, told me who he was. And I started feeling relaxed. You know, it's another black man. He knows how this go. So I know he's gonna make sure that these people are not gonna mess over me. So I'm relaxed now. So he started making small talk with me, asking me about my children. I tell him about my children. Ask him about his. He said he had a son in college. And we just make small talk. So he said, are you ready to take the polygraph test? I said, yes, sir, I'm ready. So we get in, we walk into this other room. It's a small room, had a desk in it and a chair. And on top of the desk was the polygraph machine. So the polygraph operator asked me to take a sit, seat in the chair. And he was gonna hook me up to some of these wires that was on my fingers and my chest. And, uh, and then after that, he, he walked behind the desk well, we were getting ready to begin the polygraph operator, uh, exam. I'm calm, nope, I, I'm not thinking of nothing, but just telling the truth. But I noticed that the chair he had facing toward the door, so I couldn't see him, barely could see him out of my peripheral. And he was over here with the machine. He started asking me questions, and I realized he only asked me about three questions, but he asked them in different ways. One was, is your name Anthony Graves? And I said, yes. The second was, is Anthony Graves your name? And I said, yes. The third was, were you at the homes of the Davis family when they were murdered? And I answered, no. The fourth was, 
is your name Anthony Graves? And I said, yes. So he went on and on like that. So in all ways, in all, he asked me about three questions, but he asked them in different ways. And about 10 minutes after the polygraph, he said, okay, we're done. But I noticed something that didn't dawn on me at the time. But when he was doing the polygraph, I could hear him tearing off paper, ripping it up and throwing it in like a trash or something. But I didn't think much of it until many years later. And we'll, we'll eventually get that. But what I want to say now is after the polygraph and he tells me it's over, I'm relaxed. I just told him the truth. This is a black man. I know he's not going to let them mess over me. And man, I was in for a rude awakening <laughs> because I said to him, oh man, I'm glad this over so I can go home, man, you know, because I've been with them all day. He said, well, not so, not so fast. He said, because you didn't pass the test. I said, man, I just looked at it. Because at that moment, I knew then they didn't want the real story. They was trying to find a way to put this on me. And here this black man who I trusted and who they knew I would trust is now telling me I failed a test that I just sit there and told the truth about. And I just looked at him, I shook my head and I was like, man, by this time, the Texas Ranger had entered into the room. It was like four of them. And they started playing good cop, bad cop on me. One grabbed me, Big Lou. He grabbed me by my arm, twisted up my back as though he finna haul me out and beat me. And so as he's, he's, he's hauling me out after he's abusing me this way and I'm, I'm walking out on my tiptoes because he got my hand so full of my back that he can break it. And I'm asking him, man, why are you doing me like this? Why are you doing me like this? And then by this time, another officer walks out of another room and tell Lou, chill out. I got him. Chill out. So he's good cop, bad cop. So now the one finna save me is the good cop. So he tells Lou, the bad cop, I got him. And he, he takes me and we go into this other room. And by this time I'm crying now because I've been telling you the truth and you don't want to hear it. But not only that, now you're abusing me. You're physically abusing me. And had I known, I know for a fact that had Big Lou just been a regular person on the street and me and him got into that altercation. He wouldn't have just done it like that. Let's just, let's just put it like that. I'd have beat his ass. But at that moment, I'm in, I'm in custody. And so I have to cooperate because they can kill me and then say I tried to escape, but ain't nobody gonna ask no question. So I need to cooperate fully. So by this time, the other officer, he pulls me into this room. We're at this big table, it's just me and him, it's, but it's a big room. And he started talking to me, telling me that I'm in a lot of trouble, but how he wants to help me. And I am trying to figure out, you know, if you really want to help me, then listen to me while I'm telling you the truth. But what I noticed is they just wanted me to, to admit to doing a crime I didn't do. And that's the only way they were looking to help me is if I lied on myself. So it didn't make sense to me. The only way I can get your help is if I lie. But telling the truth, you're not going to help me. You're going to try to put the case on me. That's really the message that was coming across. So I'm studying trying to tell this man through tears that I know nothing about this case. This goes on all the way up until about one o'clock that morning. Finally, one of the Texas Rangers, who's the lead investigator, Officer Ray Coffin. Officer Ray Coffin, about 5'11", weighed about a buck 30. I think his gun weighed more than him, all right? 
And he had this little, and he had this walk like he walked on his tiptoes, like his boots was too tight for him. Had this big old hat on, and had these dark shade glasses on. Of course he was white, you know. That's pretty much who, who was handling the case. It's so funny that a black family got murdered. They were accusing two young black men and it was all white folks handling the case, right? So that's a recipe for disaster because at the end of the day, do you really think they cared about what happened to that family or to my family? Well, the action showed that they didn't because after this, going back and forth up until 1 a.m., this officer walks up to me, looks me in my face, and he says to me, he said, Mr. Graves, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't think you did this crime, but if you don't give me nothing on Carter, we're gonna put this whole case on you. And if you actually innocent, then don't let no grass grow in your grave. And he looked at the other officer and he said, get him out of here. And I said to him, so I have to go to jail for something I don't know nothing about? And he just looked at me as if he didn't give a damn. Turned off, turned around and walked off. Now I'm being escorted back to the police cruiser with Big Lou. And we headed to a town called Milam County, a town I've never been to. But this is where the crime is supposed to have happened in. It takes us about an hour to get there driving at 90 to 100 miles an hour. And as you notice, I've, I haven't even spoke to you about calling anyone and letting anyone know what I, where, I, where I'm at. It's two o'clock in the morning by the time we get to this jail. And I'm tired, but I know my mom is worried about me. So I'm asking them, can I use the phone? Because I want to talk to my mom. I just want her to know where I'm at and that I'm okay. But more importantly, I want to know why the hell am I involved in this? Why someone lie on me like this? I needed some answers. So I'm asking Lou, man, can I call, at least call my mom, man? Because they never gave me a phone call. So finally, he told the officer after they booked me into this little jail that, hey, once you book him in, let him make the phone call. Officer said, okay. Now, by the time we get there, and they're gonna book me in. They also asked this inmate, who was a trustee at the time, to go get me some clothes. And Lou tell him, no, don't get him no clothes because I'm gonna pick him up in the morning and take him to Carwell. So they just put me in this cell. And this was a cell in the middle of the, of the jail floor. Just one cell is like, like if you ever watched that movie where they had the guy in this cage in the middle of the floor. That's how they had me. I was their special bird. So they had me in the middle of this floor in this cage and I'm, I can't see anything and you can't look in unless you open up the panhole, right? And then there were trustees out there and this one trustee was walking by the cell and he was, he was sweeping at four o'clock in the morning. And I asked him, I said, man, can you remind that officer that I'm supposed to use the phone? And he went up and told the officer that was at the desk. Five minutes later, the officer came back there and got me and brought me back up to the front to use the phone. So I called my mom. And just like that, first ring she answered. And I, hey mom, what's up? She said, boy, where are you at? I said, man, they got me somewhere in Milam County saying that I, I was involved in a crime or something, man. 
saying that Robert Carter said that I was involved in a crime. I don't know this dude. And my mom was like, no, you don't know him. That's, that's Cookie husband, but you ain't never had no dealings with him. I'm like, well, why would he lie on me like this here? This guy don't know me. And my mom is, you know, she's upset. She's like, they just can't put this on you when you won't even know these people. And, you know, so this is the conversation I'm having with my mom. But she's making me feel better because she's making me realize, you know, you haven't done nothing and they just can't do you like this. I want to hold on to that, man. I really want to hold on to that. So I go and uh, after I talk with my mom, he put me back in his cell. And uh, several hours later, Lou show back up because it's, it's morning time. It's about 9 a.m. He shows back up and um, they come to the cell and they shackle me again. Put, escorted me out and back into the police car. And he takes me about another 15, 20 minutes down the highway to a, another county, another town called Carwell. See, these towns are all in my, in the, uh, county that this case happened in, which is Burleson County, right? So they taking me over here to Carwell. In Carwell, uh, there's this jail that was, com well, was converted into a jail, but it was a dog kennel, okay? <laughs> when I tell you, man, this is, this is like back in the day, this was a house, and the house had a garage, and a garage, and a Across the garage, that was a dog kennel that they converted into a 10-man jail cell. When we get to this this cell, I mean to this house, I didn't know where we were. Pull up, it was it was it was a, it was a, a dirt road that was I mean a gravel road that was no pavement in the at the driveway. We pull up at this house, old Victorian style home, and next thing I know, an officer comes out. And I'm shocked, because I don't know where I'm at. I did see a couple of police cars. Maybe this could be the courthouse. Officer come out. Big Lou gets out the car, gets me out the car, and tell the officer to book me into the jail. So we all walk into the, the, the front part of the house. You had to walk through the kitchen into the front room, and that's the booking area, okay? Stay with me. So this is what I was dealing with. So they walked me into this, this room, into the front room, and they have this speaker and they had the speaker on where you could hear everybody over in the jail talking. So they had speakers on everybody's cell. But the, the lights, the lights wasn't lit up. So you didn't know which cell was which, but you could hear people talking. So the guy booked me in, took him about 15 minutes, booked me in. Uh, his name was Sean Erich. I'll never forget him. He was a little Hispanic guy about at that time. I say he was about 27, 28, wanting to be a police officer. All right. So when he, he was excited to be a part of this big case, booking this guy in, okay? So everybody was professional right now. And after he booked me in, he gave me some clothes and told me, come on, we gonna escort me over to the jail. <laughs> so in order to get to the jail, we had to go across the driveway <laughs> of the garage into this kennel that they converted into a jail. When he get me there, it's about 20, 25 people in there, this jail. But everybody is double up in these cells, except for this one cell that has no one in it. And this was the cell that was gonna put me in. So we get over there, he opens up the first cell, it's the cell number one, and this is where I'm gonna be staying until this get resolved. I get in the cell, he shuts the door, 
And by the time he shuts the door and I turn around and walk up to the door, the guy that lied on me, Mr. Carter, is right across the, the way from me, okay? Now remember I told you, anything you say can and will be used against you. That's why you should never talk without your attorney. But because you're innocent, I know you just have the, you just want to tell the truth. I know I've been there, right? I lost 18 and a half years of my life because I know I was innocent and wanted to tell the truth. But I promise you, when I say that those people told you that what you say can and will be used against you, once again, they are telling you the truth. You do not talk without an attorney, okay? Once I get in the cell and the officer locks the door and he walks away and I turn around, I see the guy that lied on me, Mr. Robert Carter. He had bandages wrapped around his head like he'd been in a fire. Mr. Carter was about 27, 28 years old himself, about five, seven, five, eight, a light brown skin guy, um, very quiet. I really didn't know him, but he had a quiet demeanor. So when I look, turn around, I see him, the first thing I want to ask this dude is why he lie on me. But in my mind, I'm thinking maybe this guy got to be crazy. Definitely if he think that I, was, I did a crime with him. So I asked him, hey man, you think I did a crime with you? And he shook his head, no. I say, man, for my children's sake and my mother's sake, hey, could you tell these people the truth? And he just shook his head, yes, and he walked off. He walked off, that's all he said. He never spoke a word, he walked off. Three weeks later, when they needed to find something to keep me in jail, this officer who was on duty that, that day, that booked me in, came up with a statement three weeks later. He never said nothing up until then, but three weeks later he writes this statement saying that he overheard me and Carter talking about the crime. And I told Mr. Carter, keep his damn mouth shit, I did the job for him and let them figure it out. Never said nothing like that. But the fact that I asked Mr. Carter, man, do you think I did a crime with you? That was enough for him to say that I said something that I didn't say. So, so understand that when you get in a situation like this, the best thing to do is ask for an attorney and keep your mouth shut. You've been listening to the Smart Justice Reform Podcast with Anthony Graves. For more information about how you can get involved or support the program, visit anthonybelieves.org. And be sure to subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or whatever streaming media platform you use. I'm Anthony Graves, and I crisscross this globe sharing my story about my injustice. People often come up to me and ask me, what is it that they can do to help? And I tell them there's three things that you can do. Number one, contact your local and state rep. Show up for jury duty when you're summoned. And most importantly, vote. <laughs>